0: Hello everyone, So Khan here at Anti-Small Talk and today in our collaboration with Teacher Hug Radio we have the wonderful Dr Helen Ross joining us to talk about all things dyslexia, all things about supporting staff, all things, all things. Hello Helen and welcome to Anti-Small Talk.
1: Why thank you, it's lovely to be here, I'm feeling very, very privileged, so yeah. So Helen, for our
0: audience, we've got a global audience here on Teacher Hug Radio slash Anti-Small Talk, who is Helen Ross?
1: Oh Helen Ross is definitely round to mouth. <laughs> okay. I I talk a lot we were just before we start recording we were saying we both talk a lot so mm-hmm. I do. I am a teacher two days a week Um, so i special needs teacher. I've spent a lot of time kind of ending up working in special needs following starting teaching when I was in Barnsley like it feels like a million years ago and I, I don't know we're teaching in Barnsley like where all the minor strikes happened was kind of my that okay. was my training actually literally was my training ground where I did teacher training I'm from Royal Leamington Spa darlings it's where I grew up it's not exactly it's not it's not a bad place to grow up but so there was a massive contrast like where I went between where I grew up and where I worked and teaching in Barnsley really opened my eyes to kind of the wobbles and the difficulties that some communities and some groups of people have in a way that Leamington Spa Darlings doesn't <laughs> in mm-hmm. the same way um so I ended up kind of getting really angry about policy and that kids were getting pooed on from a great height basically and mm-hmm. um, me and my husband got married and kind of I ended up we went, went traveling we we're very very fortunate we went traveling and while we were away I was like I'm going to do a PhD and learn about social policy because I don't know how it works I didn't know the first thing about it but all the people in like consultancies you know like when you read government paper stuff they all have PhDs good. I'm like i I, i'm gonna get one of them i'm gonna work and i'm gonna get one of them so eventually i i did went to bath and i've ended up very much focusing on kind of specific learning difficulties because i've got dyslexia so my brain's like a goldfish Mm. um my writing's like a dog's dinner and it just yeah if i don't write yeah so it's quite there's a few barriers to me getting stuff out and i'm like well if with my background and i'm really lucky if people don't have the support and the to be terribly blunt the financial resources that my family is very very lucky to have what are they going to do so I kind of ended up deciding I was going to get a PhD and do stuff as much as I can for free just so that we can pay our mortgage and then the rest of it like whatever it doesn't matter so I've ended up being like so yeah I'm kind of I'm kind of a bit of a, a bit of a megaphone about dyslexia special needs getting people resources they need and mm. I've ended up living in Wiltshire which I never thought I would
0: so as you were talking okay, I picked up on a couple of things okay
1: okay good. so
0: Special education needs dyslexia. How yes. do you think we should? How, what are the best methods? What are the best methods or tips you've got for supporting students and staff? Because we differentiate for students, don't we?
1: Of course, we do as best we can. How,
0: how do we differentiate for staff as well? Because I've worked with dyslexic members of staff as well, and they've turned around and said to me, Oh, Shreb, I can't read that, or they're going too fast. And you kind of feel as though it's a bit awkward. Putting your hand up um, in, in a briefing or in a CPD session saying, Can you slow down? So, are there any tips you could possibly provide for our listeners in supporting, particularly for staff? For yes. staff.
1: Um, I think multi, I'm going to sound exactly like I would for the kids. But if you've got a PowerPoint, for the love of God, make it a little bit friendly. Don't do black and white. You, it's, mm. it's what you would do for the kids. You're not going to have, you know, font size 15 on a PowerPoint that's going to get um put up in the hall sorry my dogs are a bit a bit whingy oh. this afternoon whether we're inside or out the dogs will be whinging oh. um so it's things yeah it's and it's not reading not going through it too quickly and I think if people can can they send the powerpoint out before the session mm-hmm. so if it's a training day or whatever you know you're not going to write your powerpoint in the morning of well in an ideal world <laughs> You're not going to write your PowerPoint, you know, 10 minutes before you speak. So, if you can ping it out to staff before, then they've got time to download just that to their device, what you know, whatever flavor of device they've got. Mm. And it might be then the staff can make their own changes to it. Like if somebody uses Times New Roman, I'm like, nah, Mm. so I change it all on my own computer. And I think that can be really helpful. It can be things like verbally stopping partway three is for you know has everyone has everyone made sense of the slide are there are there any questions about this particular slide rather than going talking for half an hour and then going because I did not got any questions because by the time you get to the end it's sort of a moot point quite often and people yeah if you're self-conscious I mean not everyone is like me I don't give a stuff who knows I'm dyslexic I'm self-confident enough that I don't care some people are quite um conscious of it which is really hard but I think yeah I would say Whatever you do for the kids, do it for staff, because we're all humans and dyslexia doesn't go away because you've got past twenty-five. You still Mm. you still can't remember anything or reading stuff is an absolute poo. And really little thing. Turn schools need to turn on the (laughs) in Microsoft Office there's the like text to speech, the accessibility features. Mm -hmm. If they can just turn on the elements of that so that people could in school can press play then people's computers can read powerpoints read emails out to them like changes my life doing that mm. it just makes everything easier
0: again you're calling for very small changes not huge you know groundbreaking <gasps> tinkering no and, you, and it's free
1: can... it's free windows office 365 has this stuff built in but mm. some schools just uh, i think it must be an element I, i'm not a network manager i don't know but it's you you can flick a switch in yeah. the school network management stuff from what i understand but not every school does it and i d- i don't know why because in rocket science so of
0: course absolutely absolutely it doesn't require again it doesn't require anything too groundbreaking or too
1: no un- indeed or that- expensive absolutely. it's free absolutely if you've got office 365 you've got it so just switch the switch like
0: absolutely absolutely i think one thing that i pick up when i talk to loads of educators well oh, yeah of course people time and space i think that's what's really important because mm-hmm. not everyone works at the same pace i remember i yeah. said tv session and the fella spoke for a full hour. Oh. It was wonderful, I learned loads, but by the end of it, I was exhausted to actually yeah. implement the things he was talking about. I'm to take another, take a recap, reading back over what I've written. It would be nice if it was differentiated. There were breaks. It was small, bite-sized, you know, opportun- room. Yeah,
1: opportunity. Yeah, for sure.
0: Absolutely. So, again, like you say, you know, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It's all about sort of differentiating for students and also for our staff as well. Though. I don't think there's yeah. even the staff handbook. Remember, they used to print them out, those big catalogs. What about them? <laughs> I don't like- Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And reading them as well. I think that's the thing, you know, are we giving uh, staff enough time to digest the information in that? Is, no. it, is it catered for people who've got dyslexia, for example? So but do I have, you mm. know, in-depth knowledge? Absolutely not. So providing that CPD, that's free, oh, available sure. and geared towards individual needs, because again, not every mm. dyslexic child is the same. Nope. Not every ADHD child is the same. These. No. these- individual you know elements of neurodiversity need to be catered for
1: yeah oh i you know i think the word neurodiversity is such a powerful mm. and useful it's a useful concept because there's like a, a venn diagram and I, I sent it to a friend of mine from my dyslexia assessor training course where it's like what all the um sort of characteristics of mm. dyslexia adhd Um, what's the word autistic spectrum condition like there's so much commonality around kind of working memory executive function and I understand some of these medical diagnoses some of these are kind of I can diagnose them with my dyslexia specific learning difficulties hat but there's so much commonality so what you do kind of around literacy and around giving people wriggle room time and space works for will be friendly for most most kids you know when you kind of get into the more complicated mm-hmm. needs around like autism then that, that again that's a very different thing but actually a bit of time and space will work for a lot of children not for everybody but
0: absolutely absolutely i think again you know knowing your staff is important knowing your student knowing the context we talk about this all the time you know one of this the best pieces of advice i was ever given was to make sure i read the class profiles i, I used to think you nah, know i need to read yeah me. Once you read them and you understand exactly, even with your staff as well, knowing individuals, knowing their strengths and weaknesses, yeah. knowing what they find difficult or what they find easy, you know, gearing support towards those needs, I think that's where we start to see blossoming and growth, and and people. who sure. Well, rather than posters on a staff room wall, because we all love a good poster, don't we?
1: I mean, yeah, if it's a cover lesson and you can't think of anything else. Absolutely. No, I think I think they have a place, but the poster comes it's sort of secondary you talk to people like i'm literally i mean before we got on the call i've got a um, conference presentation i'm in the middle of writing for a few weeks time around building gaps between um schools and parents you know where kind of the provision sort of that, that you miss each other's mark and you miss each other's expectations and understanding of what's feasible what's practical talk to each other like you can send an edict and you can send a an email but if somebody doesn't read what's the point of sending an email when you can just pick up the phone um and it's so much around provision for for kids and engaging with communities that find things trickier talk to them you know it might mean you have to get take a trip off site from school on an afternoon you know providing that cover can be arranged now actually cover should be arranged for building bridges and communities (laughs) You know, if you're just if you're dealing with a dyslexic child or a child with specific learning difficulties or neurodiversity, chances are you're dealing with a parent and/or other family members who've got that. So you need to engage with it. One needs to engage with it.
0: I'm gonna drop the G word in here. Gove. Do you think?
1: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I had to drop it in there. <laughs> I, what I've gathered as well, because I left school in 2011 and I started my teacher training in 2015. For what I saw as well is the notion of community and school became two very distant entities. They have become separate entities. we got to remember one thing. The school is based within the community. And yeah. I, <laughs> I put a tweet out not long ago about the staff room and how for many schools they don't exist and how some of my best CPD was actually done in the staff room by simply oh, yeah. listening to people, listening to the rant, listening to them talk about the context of their classes, their students. Mm resources they may have just sitting there and listening it doesn't have to be a glossy powerpoint doesn't have to be you know something you buy or purchase online community is vital and i think we've lost a lot of that i think in the past 10 10 years massively
1: i remember i used i worked in a really lovely school in barnsley before i broke my leg which is a very different story Mm -hmm. and yeah i fell down the stairs and got my leg stuck yeah first day with kids in new build oops (laughs) i can giggle now on the day it wasn't fun because it was three months the day before i got married but that's that's yeah there's a different chat you got Um, married
0: in a cast is that is that true were you
1: almost i was married i got married in pain okay Um, (laughs) but i think we i remembered like looking at the plans for this new build and it was it's a spectacular building you know i haven't been to it for a very long time because we moved south but one of the things that was a real feature was there wasn't much of a staff room. And there it was, it was a little room. There was a couple of work rooms and departmental rooms. But sometimes if a kid's having a moment in English and finding it difficult, actually, if you talk to the history teacher, there's still a wordy subject, whatever, Flavie. You know, different teachers from different subjects have different ways of approaching things, which actually can then be applicable across the board, can't they? And I think where I work now, I work at a school in Amesbury that is absolutely beautiful. I love it. Where I work now, they're lovely, lovely colleagues. And they've we've got a new build. Literally opened in, was it March time? This this calendar year, I think it was, it opened. The staff rooms are re- this is proper, Staff room in a new build, and people talk to each other. It's the exchanges, you know. You've got your NQTs who are, you know, for it, in terms of teaching, not necessarily that experience, but have life before teaching, which has a really important perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got some army officers and stuff because Wilch is very army ish, army ish, sorry, not armish okay. and very different, very different, Great. and like, yeah, very different. And like, I think the perspectives that everyone has, you know, we all walk a different life, and it's quite, I, I gave some training, um, Friday gone to the some of the NKTs at our school some of them are older than me you know I'm 39 <laughs> some of them are older than me different experiences but it's quite nice for me as a person who's dyslexic and a dyslexic specialist and worked in you know sort of the SEN departments of various schools because to be able to say try this 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 is this what you're doing oh what you're doing there I can try that and it was it mm. yes I was training but it was much more a facilitating role because we were all talking and it was better actually because I normally I would sort of do it with a whiteboard and with COVID and all that rubbish and the logistics we just did it sitting down I was sitting down in the staff room with a cup of tea and it was probably a lot better for it and that will make me think about how I do things in the future but yeah it's an exchange I think everything needs to be dialogic like whether you're talking to a family whether you're talking to a kid like talk to each each other it's not a monologue it's a dialogue
0: no i definitely agree the two-way dialogue is vital isn't it we've just got a few messages from our sponsor we'll be back for part two Welcome back, everyone, to part two. We're here with a wonderful Dr. Helen Ross. Helen, we're talking about staff rooms and the significance of staff rooms and how they're in decline more and more. I think someone referred to them as sort of being stereotyped as, you know, communist cesspools. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the nicest word
1: (laughs) Yeah, they do. Oh, and the kind of, because obviously we're all lefty-leaning, brainwashing, I don't know, trying to turn us into some sort of, Soviet state or whatever. Clearly, like no, no. We just listen to each other. I think I think you bang on. Like my mum used to be a school librarian. My mum is like so clever. She's insanely bright. She used to manage an office in a school. She also used to be a computer programmer. You know, before she had me and my brother. One of our you know, various cleaners at our school have lived work, walks of life. And do you know, what? I think there's a school that I would not send my little boy to because of how the kids spoke to the. This- to the dinner ladies and i think if you've got a school where dinner ladies are spoken to and disrespected there's no way i would send my kid there no. because a dinner lady is a person and they they see everything dinner ladies and cleaners mm. see everything mm. they are so important and if someone didn't clean your floor or you can't teach in a room every member of the community is so important and should hold equal value. And if that makes me part of the communist cesspool, <laughs> that's a really good expression. Yeah, I'm in it. I'm in it and I'll swim in it. Because if you don't listen to the people that see everybody, everything, why are you teaching? Why, why are you not listening to people?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one thing that's really prominent is if you—if uh, Ofsted inspectors are listening to this conversation, I hope they are, while staying and sat at home. And not going into buildings Because co- it's not COVID secure But listen <laughs> yeah, we asking, are We <laughs> need to be asking Supply teachers You know as well You know What's a school mm. I've done supply I've done various stints And supply Yeah I have them They need to know Exactly what it's like For a stranger to walk in How the children Embrace that stranger How the staff Embrace that stranger as well I think that's what's Absolutely vital So yes. again you know Again these two day Judgments from Ofsted You know the metrics They use We're not here to criticize them. We're here to hear about it, Hear your story But
1: Ofsted phew, Tricky Struc- structurally problematic. Mm, there we go. Good. We'll ma- make, make it sound a bit academic and a bit posh. Okay. Struc- structurally, I don't agree with all of their actions. Okay, no, that sounds, I that. That sounds-
0: <laughs> I'm gonna put that in my notes now. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: <laughs> so, Helen,
0: okay, we've got a couple more questions here for you. Okay? Go on, go for it. You transition from a classroom teacher into a Senko. There's many people have that ambition. Many, many people. I can imagine many people listening to this conversation will have that ambition as well. Yeah. What's it like being a Senko and what tips do you have for future Senkos or current Senkos?
1: <laughs> well, I transitioned to being a Senko and then I kind of de-transitioned away from being a Senko again. So um, being a Senko is a, it's a very lonely role, a potentially very lonely role. If you have a management team that don't get it, mm. you know, you, I'm on a couple of Facebook groups for Senkos and stuff still, because it's around, I'm still at the moment, I'm kind of acting up because my, Senko, Senko is on mat leave because you are subject you you are one of two legally named roles in a maintained school the head teacher and the senko. each school has to have a senko, and the weight of a lot of provision of a lot of practice is on your shoulders um the flip side of that is the capacity and the power to some extent to facilitate young people's inclusion and participation in school is with you so when things go well it is like it's epic, you know. If you manage to get a referral for somebody in place, or if you manage to kind of engage with a class teacher and you, together with the class teacher and the kid and the family, work out what what would work, it's amazing. Again, it's about relationships. You know, I've had it where relationships are broken down, and it's been it's been really hard actually. And I ended up sitting on the opposite side of a table from a paralegal who I know quite well. He's, he's a lovely, lovely man, but I was on the opposite side of the table from him, and it was really it was sad because that was that was a tricky thing to navigate ultimately the kid ended up in a well where they were from what i understand but it was hard at the time so i think yes being a senko is incredibly valuable it's it's incredibly important as a role hopefully people who are looking towards doing are in schools where the role is valued because if management don't get it you'll get questions like well what do you do all day (laughs) breathe sometimes sometimes i eat you know if you're in a position where you're given time because it, it swallows up all your time if you if in school you're given the time to engage with teachers meetings professionals observations because seeing kids in context and talking to them is so important you're going you're going to be in a good way and I think I think as a role it's it's pivotal but with the pivotal side of it nobody else in the school does that job and nobody else unless you're doing it you don't get it you can cognitively know it you don't feel it so I think I would say if you're looking at doing it build networks um I know Wiltshire where I'm based as like Senko networks they've been online obviously with the last um, COVID and stuff, but they have physical meetings as well. So I would say try and get into at least online networks like the Senko group on Facebook. They're, they're such a collegiate group of people. They are absolutely lovely. I and mean, you don't always agree with people on it, but yeah. it's 99% of the time really respectful and to edify each other. Yeah, just talk to people, get in touch with local authorities know your send your local offer as well but ultimately for me it it broke me i'm quite open you know i've had mental health worries over the years and i found it was taking over too much of my brain space and with all the other stuff i do it just meant that things the voluntary stuff i do i wouldn't i couldn't manage it and for me the kind of trustee british dyslexia association stuff working around with people doing a lot of stuff that doesn't pay me but is important that that was more important you know, we're lucky that Mr. Dr. Ross is a very very patient kind man and generally if I say can I he says yes Ellen go ahead you know un- unless it's going to financially break us or upset picking up our little dude we work together to tag team everything there are times he's got to do stuff so the same coing had to change and I I moved over to being more self-employed which just it just suits me better because I'm in charge of my time and work stupid hours still but that's my choice as opposed to being imposed on me. Of
0: course, absolutely.
1: I remember when I used to
0: work with. Uh, I was a TA before I became a teacher. Oh wow,
1: okay, that's so important. That right. is such that, an important role. That
0: year was so eye-opening for me because mm. I was very much teaching and learning-focused. I was very much focused on getting in the classroom. But once I, like, like I said to you before we started speaking, I didn't really read yeah. class profiles and things like that. That oh, year, no. working in the SEN department and working with the SENCO, working with, you know, people that were seem more senior to me. That dialogue was important and the knowledge, the nugget of mm. knowledge that I developed. I remember there was a, morning, uh, I think it was a, a mock exam or something. I had to facilitate or scribe for a student. I do not know what that oh, meant.
1: Really hard. The second
0: old lady pulled me and she said to me, show up. this is how you do it. And she showed me how to do it properly. And it's a life skill now that I've developed. Obviously it needs altering and changing for students.
1: Yeah, of course it does.
0: But I think it's improved my practice more in the classroom being a TA. Mm. I oh, I think so. so
1: I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think TAs are... Again, I sound like I'm being derogatory, and I'm not. TAs are a bit like dinner ladies in that they are in many different settings in a school. They see kids, and you know, they see kids at break time. They see kids in different classrooms, in different with different teachers, different interactions. They know the kids intimately. That their their knowledge of how a kid's brain works. So is is just second to none in any school because quite especially in secondary the tas are the consistent adults yeah. whereas you know the kids hop from from teacher to teacher so to 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 say somebody is just a ta makes my blood boil you're not just a ta you're a crucial member that's part of the team around that child it's the most i think it's one of the most underpaid undervalued fiscally jobs in a school because it's emotionally exhausting for some of the tas what they do they're, they're amazing mm. so and the level of diplomacy of the lessons of it pants, the level of diplomacy that you have to have as a ta is just they could run nato and we would have world peace
0: of course and also helen can i i'm just going to add this uh without yeah, sounding derogatory as well the training for ta isn't great i'm going to be honest be very honest not wrong
1: it varies I agree.
0: The school i'm not going to you know discredit some schools have got fantastic ta provision but i don't think like you say because they haven't got qts because a lot of them may not have a degree they're not given that level of gravity and gravitas, the role's not given that Yeah, level. understood. So it's the pay matches the lack of, you know, respect and value that school may attach to them. I remember I was working in a primary school, I did a, a couple of days placement, and the HLTA was basically like a classroom teacher, secondary to a teacher, to think that they're earning, you know, 10, 20, 30, maybe even 40,000 pound less than the main classroom teacher and doing basically the same role with a lot more, with a, even sometimes adding the marking load as well. Oh, absolutely. The conversation that needs to be had. And again, you know, we're at a time of the past 10, 12 years of austerity. I think COVID has exposed that as well.
1: I agree. Yeah. The
0: role of a teaching assistant is more paramount now than ever. They are the extension of the teacher, in my opinion.
1: Yes. Yeah. And you're a team. It's like, especially in primary, because in um, primary teaching, because I've been saying going to primary school and I've got sort of some quite strong connections with the primary school just across the way from me. I'm pointing to it as though you can see where I'm pointing to. <laughs> no, Helen. Um, but like, they, quite often they'll plan together, you know, or I know where TA, I've just taken on a class as part of a mat cover for one of my colleagues who's gone to have a baby. And before I did any planning or any seating plans, I spoke to the TAs who've been with them since, you know, September because the TAs know the class I know them some of the kids I do know because I've done some interventions with them but the TAs other other members of staff who work with these kids have worked with them longer than I have no better than I do why on earth would I impose what I think you know with, with my I'm Dr Helen <laughs> no that's just silly mm. I just you, you have to you have one has to value the experiential knowledge and sometimes the Curriculum knowledge of TAs. I just, I just can't understand why people wouldn't. You know, when I remember, when I remember to email myself my planning, because sometimes it's sort of it's transferring it between computers. So, one of the things I'm really conscious of is, as best I can, with enough time in advance, I try and email my planning to TAs who are going to be working in the class because if they know what I'm planning. If they know what I'm planning, then they're not caught on the back foot. No, you're
0: absolutely so, right. I want to put you on the spot, Helen. Oh, on the spot here. <laughs> Uh, I so, <laughs> you know, let's hypothetically speaking. Let's say there was a I don't know a national. Di- there probably is like a national diploma for being a teaching assistant, and the salary matches the qualification. If you know what I'm trying to say, how do you think schools can facilitate that development of being you're a parent and you decide to work in special education needs or you want to be a TA? There needs to be a level of rigorous training, doesn't it At times when I was a TA, I was thrown in hand on heart. I was interviewed on the mm. Thursday, on the Friday I was working in the school just (laughs) wow my dbs had been done before they did it prior they were looking to employ me anyway but that rigorous training i did not receive so i think perhaps you know maybe like a sort of national approach some sort of like national there's a national college for teaching and learning perhaps you know something for teaching assistants i don't know i'm just trying to throw an idea out there
1: i think it's a really good idea whether i don't think it should necessarily be university degree or diploma type thing although if people have a degree in sort of childhood studies or Mm -hmm. I don't don't know my first degree is mechanical engineering so I've never really looked too much into the um degree side of child development but I think it's a really good idea I wonder whether perhaps and then maybe this I say I don't I don't know but I think something along the lines of a really well-regarded decent apprenticeship scheme because i uh, with input around um developmental stuff so how you know why primary children behave the way they do and what you can do to nudge them along the right direction or f- of your secondary and equivalent thing sort of the child psychology side child development because i think yeah i think that would be a really good idea and i think doing it as a sort of vocational type course means you get the you'd get theoretical knowledge but also then the capacity to understand its applications there and there and then and on the job i, I think i would be reticent to say that a purely academic based route for TAs will be good in the same way that teacher training shouldn't all be theoretical yes there are theoretical elements around pedagogy around development that you need to know but you need to know what to do with them
0: absolutely absolutely That that transfer from abstract to reality yep
1: yeah exactly that and I think something like that for TAs yeah I think it's a really good idea because it and I think then that would it would help people understand the importance of and the the difficulty of the role. (laughs) I was at the park the other day and I saw a Norland NAMI trainee norland is like a really prestigious nanny training college there's a probably a better name than that for it but it's it's based in bath and we saw people and they've got a really kind of old school formal uniform and me and my husband were like <laughs> when we saw them but actually i was talking to this girl and she's saying that, you know they get they do the placements they do everything they, they get a degree in i can't she did say they get they get a formal degree but the crucial bit for norland nannies and they are like world renowned i now know this from working in private schools as well is the the practical experience the training they have around the social skills and kind of I think it's quite old-fashioned I don't know the ins and outs but if somebody who's like on paper just a nanny can command world respect why can someone who's you know just a TA as it were not be properly respected because it's a really important job but they've got kids lives in their hands as teachers do
0: No, fantastic. We've just got a few messages from our sponsors and we'll be back for part three. Welcome back everyone to part three of Teacher Hug Radio slash Anti-Small Talk. We're here with the wonderful Dr. Helen Ross. Helen, we're talking about the role of a TA. What about the emotional role of a TA or the emotional capacity required to be a TA? That's something I believe you want to shed light on, isn't it?
1: I think emotionally... I'm quite lucky I over the years I've managed to go it's just a job I love my job but it's just mm-hmm. a job and I'm quite a lot better able to park school at school but I think yeah it's the there's an emotional you have to have a relationship it's about the relationships again it's the dialogue it's the relationship it's the interactions TAs have a very very it's a carer type relationship with the kids yes. they work with so often in a way that teaching isn't because well, it just isn't. Um, there's probably a way to quantify it, qualify it, whatever, but it, you know, it doesn't matter at this point. I think, and so the emotional input that TAs have for each of their children is just above and beyond. I think I think they're amazing, absolutely, absolutely. amazing people.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, TAs, day, they're very underrated. I think a lot more uh, funding, a lot more support and a lot more respect thrown their way. Yeah. Definitely. I've worked with some incredible yeah. TAs. Shout out to all the TAs out there. You deserve yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. You deserve so much more than what you get. And uh, we are fighting your uh, your corner. It's just unfortunate. We find ourselves in a situation of anti-research, as I refer to it as the era of anti-research. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the anti-expert, isn't it? Like yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. It does not Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, but just yeah
0: absolutely Helen. we've got some quest- more questions here for you okay Oh, okay so i've been looking through your website i looked at your website before oh dear.
1: yeah is, is
0: key piece of research really stands out for you you'd like to share with us the findings of that research because i could go through all of them. I'd be it all day but is there that one in particular <laughs> that i'm really asking you to really like be really selective but is there one in particular that really screams out to you saying that yeah that was that was top that was good
1: that i've done oh yeah. gosh um i think the most Like in terms of setting me out and getting me rolling along the pathway that I'm on it's one called, it's it's a battle I think it was, I'd have to double check I wrote a paper, it came out in 2017 that was about the experiences of parents trying to get support in place for their kids and around um, the experiences of parents working with schools and things and that it's all just, I paraphrase myself but it's just a bit tricky and really quite pants Mm. (laughs) obviously there's more to it and that piece of work Got picked up on by the Office for Science and Tech, but just over a year ago, that ended up with me doing um, a systematic, a rapid evidence review for for this wing of government. Um, and it's it was God, it was such a privilege to like to be actually paid to do something that was fascinating, and has been used. Like they sent letters to the Prime Minister and stuff with my name wow. on. I was like, That's ah! I know, I did tell my mum and my dad. I'm like. No! dad look what i did but actually um sort of a little flippant but it, it's not flippant because one of the things that really kind of gets my go and it covid has absolutely um brought this to the fore as well when i was looking at this rapid evidence review the obvious thing for me that they could do for kids is just get them a laptop you know if every kid in the state school just has a laptop it's going to be like a, a value supermarket owned brand value equivalent it's not going to be be posh kind of department store laptop but if they've got a laptop they can do text-to-speech they can change their font they can get online they don't need to worry about the mechanisms of handwriting if their writing is a bit pants and that was just the thing that got to me and from that I've kind of ended up looking a lot my husband did a whole lot of work around the digital divide as well so we spent a lot of time looking around that and it sort of got me looking at other countries and what they do Uruguay cool little country Uruguay every kid in a state school has a laptop as part of a government program because that was their choice um I know a guy who was on my PhD cohort looked at Rwanda and there was a similar initiative in Rwanda but it's sort of you know given given it's been not exactly an easy ride for Rwanda it's not been implemented as wholly as in Uruguay and so yeah it's kind of the train of thought that this paper in 2017 started off has been pretty pretty epic and i'm yeah i've been really grateful for that it's been it's been awesome
0: no that's fantastic that's a fantastic, fantastic. i'll put that in our bio as well that the reference that paper i think it sounds wonderful you know one Thank thing you you've, one thing no you're welcome one thing i picked up on is also the, digi- the digital divide yeah. <laughs> I think this is how we connected. I think we followed each other as a result of uh, my critique of uh, the way disadvantaged children were treated during the pandemic. So I was very vocal, very, very vocal yeah. the situation. I still find it alarming to think that some WhatsApp contact somewhere has been given a huge, 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 you know, wadge of money from the government, taxpayer money to provide laptops. I work in a school where children still don't have those laptops. And it's not, Helen, let's be honest, it's not just laptops. It's Microsoft Word. It's having all the softwares on there. It's having yeah. internet. It's having a charger. It's having the means to charge the laptop. It's about yeah. being able the to whole structure. It. Absolutely, it's not just about having a laptop. We can give children laptops. That's not the issue. It's the literacy, the the uh, the literacy of technology, providing them with the support, understanding how yeah. they can use it. I've <laughs> yeah, got I've got year sevens who can't use PowerPoint again. Where where are we embedding these skills and are we embedding these skills and I just think you know the whole situation still a farce if there's another lockdown <laughs> yeah. God willing God willing there's not another lockdown yeah, if there's another lockdown we are in real deep waters aren't we with our disadvantaged children and again where is there evidence they've fallen behind as well we need this evidence before we can start pitching interventions and, and extending the school day which I know has been thrown out I think you know how uh, what an sh- absolute sh- f- <sighs> f-
1: I think, well, it's quite interesting because some of the work I do um, on research actually is with Swansea, some colleagues at Swansea Uni. And a few years ago at a conference, I ended up chatting to somebody about the Welsh curriculum and they embed digital literacy. So I was talking to the person that kind of p- pioneered that. And it's really good, actually. It They they, they do computer science, which I I, mm, mm, I think computer science has its value, but you need to know how to use use a computer and be literate be safe online you know don't tell everybody where you live just and it's that kind of functionality functioning online and they that is embedded in the new welsh curriculum that's coming in sort of over the next couple of years and it's brilliant um in uruguay again the Plan they 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 do that they they provide training for parents teachers carers kids holistically so that yeah you've got this little piece of kit and we're going to show you what to do with it and we're going to facilitate your use of it so schools have wi-fi so that kids can get online and uh, you know when we were in Uruguay yeah we, we went to Uruguay when we were traveling me and Andy and you saw kids with their little laptops and they would sort of sit outside <laughs> sit outside, so they've got the wi-fi it's not right it's doable It it takes it takes a vision and it takes somebody willing to risk well, no. Somebody willing to make some fundamental structural changes, absolutely. and at the moment there is no no incentive for structural changes to take place because they keep people beautifully pigeonholed. Absolutely. I'm a Bourdieusian scholar through and through. Mm-hmm. Um, education absolutely does reproduce. Me and Andy had a chat yesterday on the way home from our friend's house. No, um, one of the, a school I work at, the head went to Eton, works at private prep schools, and he's a lovely man but he's he's sort of cut from the mold of where he works when I worked in Barnsley you'd get people who'd been to the school go back and teach in the school to kind of contribute to their community but this they've never the twain will meet so to make the changes needed to have somebody go fundamentally we're going to put everybody in a state school on, a, on an even footing of having some flavor of laptop or some flavor of access to a device and education and using that that's a huge cultural change that currently I think the powers that we don't necessarily
0: absolutely, feel absolutely Helen <laughs> also giving everyone parity I think that sense of equality as well there's not that the, mm. the appetite is not there for that the appetite of treating students not necessarily the same but providing them equality of opportunity it's not there it's not there and even this whole idea of, you know, scrapping exams and what the most equi- equitable way of, you know, e- educating young people is. Again, that's that's a completely different dialogue. You know, I, what do you say to that? You know, exams in theory are the most equitable way. But historically, there's been groups and cohorts of students that have failed exams and not done well using that exam system.
1: Oh, God. I, I'm just trying to work out where to unpick to kind of comment on best. I think exams have their place. Mm. And I think for, for me, I liked exams. So did I because I'm a weirdo and I'm okay with being a weirdo Um, they're special but there are people for whom an exam is tantamount to torture and you know when you've got BTECs that were really solid a really solid coursework based um, qualification and now a BTEC's got to have an exam so that it's academic but how is coursework just because something's coursework based does not mean it's not rigorous it doesn't mean it's not academic just means you do it as you're going along and actually in the real world how often do i have to do something without ever double checking i don't need to know the children and families act by heart because i can google it Mm -hmm. so an exam is a slightly nonsensical um modus operandi when actually you've got we've got the internet you know like we, we can look stuff up we can check stuff so i think there needs to be an acknowledgement of different ways of learning. And there was, but then apparently it wasn't rigorous. And we're all teachers are all forged in this, that, and the other, and playing the game of league tables. Well, if you didn't have league tables, just saying, you know, because you've got, a, if you've got a school slap bang in the middle of a really wobbly catchment area where kids have really tricky home lives, they're not going to perform in the same way as kids, very terribly nice, white bread, leafy green suburban school. And that's not to denigrate, you know, the kids can't help where they're born. But the measurement metrics of what makes a good school are incredibly biased Mm. and incredibly, they're just utterly ridiculous. You know, years ago, we had contextual value, was it contextualized value added? I think it was in my first couple of years teaching. The school I worked at was nationwide top 10%. But then when they looked at absolute results, we were like relatively quite pants. So, but, and apparently the teaching wasn't good enough in the school, but I'm like, I've seen some, some of the best teachers are in state schools where home lives are chaotic and horrific and kids have a really tricky time because as a teacher, if you're not good, well, you've got to be good and you've got to care about the kids, but the kids might not have the same absolute outcome. And I say absolutely you know, versus relative because their starting point is so much different from the other kids. But actually, if you look at relative progress, value added, contextualized value added, these kids... Have come leaps and bounds. And, you know, what I've worked, I used to work in a nice little, <laughs> terribly nice little private girls' or formerly girls' school. It was lovely. But you get kids that would get sort of an A and two B's at A level or, you know, A's and B's at GCSE who were bright kids and lovely kids and deserve success. But those kids versus a kid that's been in a wobbly comp with a tricky home setting, they've had to work weekends, evenings to contribute to the family budget. And then if they got three B's at A level, you tell me who's better suited to university and who's got grit.
0: Of course, of course, absolutely, absolutely, and again, this is a dialogue that
1: mm. we need
0: to be having because, yeah, sort of st- where a child starts and where a child ends up, the barriers and obstacles they need to be considered as well. You know, it's uh, of course they do. Yeah, it's uh, it, this is a dialogue we definitely need to definitely need to be having. Helen, I'm just conscious of time. Okay, we've got a couple more questions here for you. Oh, oh okay. What <laughs> <laughs> about music? So, the British Dyslexia Association. For our audience, and what is the purpose of the British Dyslexia Association? This this association has got, got a very special place and I think understanding and learning about it I think is vital, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, We're in the middle of a rebrand at the moment. <laughs> so, but basically, as it stands, and I, we had a meeting a couple of weeks ago and Goldfish Brain can't remember all of it, but basically what we are trying to do is make the world aware of dyslexia and other neurodiversities as well, um, sort of dyscalculia and where the processing difficulties kick in. Make the world, make people aware of it the impact it can have on people and how it can affect their lives you know whether they're 35 year old business owners 10 year olds in primary school um, and so from that perspective make making people aware of it and then helping society at large be it schools workplaces families whatever to understand how to make things dyslexia friendly so that ultimately the world is a more inclusive place and we do it by lobbying government we do it by working with individual people individual organizations um at national level and then locally and locally is probably the place where people can get involved most easily i i started out in good old wiltshire and there is the most wonderful lady called caroline folk who is secretary of the wiltshire dyslexia association and i got put in touch with her five six i don't know like a gazillion years ago to help out locally and while I was in the middle of my PhD. And we've ended up working together and I'd sort of joined the committee and we we spend a lot of time chatting. We spend a lot of time emailing and we work with schools. We work with the local authority quite closely. I didn't build any of these relationships. I cannot take any credit for them apart from now that I I work with them still. Um so I think at local level people can work with their local dyslexia association and you know so they might you know like locally committees nationwide of the local associations we're struggling to find people because there's people are human you know people have commitments
0: no you're absolutely right there's multiple ways we can get involved we're going to talk about this a bit more we come back after our final ad break Welcome back everyone to part four. With The wonderful Dr. Helen Ross here with us. Helen, we're talking about how people can get involved in the British Dyslexia Association. What can we do at very grassroots to get involved in this this organisation? It's fantastic organisation.
1: But I think sometimes it can be something as simple as if if an event wants running, can I help? Do you need me to make the tea and coffee? Mm -hmm. Little things like that. Just, you know, get in touch with them and join the committee because the more committee members there are, the less work and effort there is the effort's not the word but yeah I think get in touch locally because we are a we're a point of contact for parents for schools for for every stakeholder in and workplaces as well. My my dad ends up working with us quite a lot. He's based in Lem but he's an employment advisor with citizens advice so he sort of sometimes provides a bit of brain power. So I would say if you want to get involved talk to your local organization if you're in a position to i don't know offer assessments offer tuition stuff like that you know do it and the more people that do a little bit the more gets done holistically that's i don't know that's my sort of philosophy on stuff and don't i i can't deal with like going oh this is rubbish i'm going to complain about and then being like well somebody needs to fix it my thought is be the somebody
0: yep yep be the somebody Absolutely. absolutely absolutely helen this has been absolutely incredible, so insightful. Where can our audience find you? Where can they find you? Where can they get contact with you? You're going to be inundated, I guarantee you, and for, for e- with emails, with tweets. Where can they find you? Um, yeah, so where, where can our audience find you?
1: Um, well, I can currently be found in the garden in Wiltshire. Um, cool. And on the on the internet, um, I'm at Dr Helen Ross on Twitter. I have a website, which is www.hellensplace.co.uk mm-hmm. Or Helen at helensplace.co.uk for emails. To be fair, if you Google Helen Ross dyslexia, Mm. I tend to come up. Um, So, yeah, I'm not on Instagram because I'm boring and no one needs to see my life. Instagram is
0: boring anyway. All due respect, Instagram is just.
1: No one needs to see me. I'm really boring. So, (laughs) I don't don't do Instagram yet. You don't take Um, photos
0: of food and stuff, do you? You don't do those sort of things, do you?
1: No. Good.
0: good. No. I I take photos of my. More now. Those people, yeah, I'm sorry.
1: That's okay. No, um, I'm, I've got a Facebook page for my, give me a minute. I can never remember what the actual Facebook page, mm. Helen's, oh, to be fair, if you just Google Helen Ross, Helen's place, I come up as well. So fabulous. At, at Dr. Helen's Ross on Twitter is probably.
0: Fabulous, fabulous. Honestly, Helen, it's been incredible talking to you.
1: Thank um, you for having me.
0: Anytime, absolutely anytime. <laughs> I one more question, but I forgot I was going to ask Go you. for it. Uh, your playlist what, what type of music do, does Dr. Helen Ross listen to? Because I can imagine it's very eclectic. Uh, what are we listening to today? It,
1: um, I, do you know what? I literally thought of this. Um, I, there's a song by Pearl Jam called Society that makes me cry. Sometimes it's about a guy that goes off into the Arctic tundra, like the top of the United States and Canada and Alaska and stuff. And it's just like he kind of despairs at Society, but it's a beautiful song. Um, I love a bit of Janie Mitchell. Um, she's just spectacular. Skunk Ansi. When I was a teenager, Skunk Ansi. And, and that's stuck with me. Um, just spectacular. And I really like Handel. I love Handel's concertos. <laughs> He's so good. But I think if I had to pick a favourite band of all time, it's Pearl Jam. They're just... I was a 90s grunger. You know, the world hated me and I hated the world. But now, as a grumpy old adult, actually, it, some of it is so poignant. When you listen to mm. the words and the motivation behind them... There's there's a lot of pain But there's a lot of social commentary That is so so relevant Absolutely can't
0: go, absolutely. absolutely. I think with music as well I think I would look for cues That can kind of support me And how I feel at that current time So I'm just going between different songs And different lyrics all the time I like to analyse yeah. lyrics I think most people who listen to music And really appreciate They like to analyse lyrics And the meaning behind it I think that's what's really important for me
1: My mum always says Well like It's a common saying What didn't kill you makes you stronger Kelly Clarkson did a song of that Like mm. <laughs> While I was in the middle of a really horrible about depression years ago mm. and it didn't kill me and it made me stronger so yay kelly clarkson the philosopher
0: thank you kelly Yay! it's been incredible having you um yeah i can't, can't wait for our audience to hear this
1: hopefully okay. yeah thank you so much for having me it's been a privilege real mm. privilege
0: Honestly, Helen, thank you so much for your time. And if you wish to be part of Anti-Small Talk slash Teacher Hug Radio, please find us at Anti-Small Talks on Twitter or www.teacherhug.co.uk. So, Shrub Khan, thank you and until next time.